Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First and second, the scholar, writer, and activist Leandros Fischer will talk about German politics with an emphasis on the refugee issue. And at the bottom of the hour, Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale, will explain why the Supreme Court sucks and what we can do about it. In an election held on Sunday, October 15th, voters in the German state of Bavaria shunned the two dominant parties, the Christian Social Union, the local affiliate of the National Christian Democrats, and the Social Democratic Party. The Greens did surprisingly well, and the right-wing Alternativa für Deutschland, AFD, outpolled the Social Democrats. That election came a day after a quarter of a million turned out for a demonstration in Berlin, one of the largest in the country's history, against xenophobia and in favor of social solidarity. More controversially, this past summer, Sarah Wagenknecht, leader of the left party Die Linke, Linke is the German word for left, founded a group called Aufstehen, which means stand up, which aims, among other things, to lure voters who have drifted to the right, thanks to the rise of the AFD, towards a left agenda. For this, she and her colleagues, notably her political and romantic partner, Oscar Lafontaine, have been denounced as soft on xenophobia. Here is Leandros Fischer, a member of Die Linke and a postdoctoral researcher based in Hamburg working on refugees and solidarity networks, to explain. Let's start uh, just with some uh, um, uh, recent news. Merkel's allies in uh, Bavaria suffered a major setback uh, in a recent election. Is this the beginning of the end of the Merkel era? Well, I think that the end has been foreshadowed for quite some time now. I don't want to get into any predictions. Anything can happen. I wouldn't say that this is the end of the Merkel era, but um, there is definitely a significant degree of erosion of support, not just for Merkel and her party, but also for the Social Democrats. Both parties, traditionally, their combined vote was the absolute majority in every election, and we see that this is not the case anymore. So there's definitely... This is definitely evidence of a growing, uh, growing polarization on the political field in Germany. Well, this is just uh, one instance of a, a development we've seen around the world where established parties are losing to uh, upstarts and more marginal formations. The Greens did fairly well uh, in the Bavarian election. Does this signify anything or is it just uh, a way of saying no to the, uh, to the mainstream? I think this is a result of the way that the recent polarization has been framed in, in mainstream media and also by countless of political pundits um, to present everything that's going on in Germany as this sort of normative conflict between social liberalism and right-wing authoritarianism. So, I mean, of course, one of the first results of this framing of the situation is that parties like the Greens and also on the other side, the supposedly other side of the spectrum, the alternative for Germany, the right-wing populist party, um, are making gains. But I would be careful to read much into the the advance of the Greens because there is a conception of the Greens as being left-wing. In essence, the Greens are a neoliberal middle-class party. Um, they have attracted a lot of votes in Bavaria from former conservative voters, former social democrats, which do not identify anymore with their party's policy of clinging on to Merkel. I would describe the, the vote for the Greens as mostly a protest vote. And then what about the performance of AFD? Uh, is it uh, surprising or, or not? It's not surprising. The percentage the AFD got in the Bavarian 
state elections has slightly decreased compared to what they got in Bavaria a year ago during the federal elections. So it doesn't come as a shock. What really is a shock is that the CSU, the Christian Social Union, which is uh, the Christian Democrat sister party in Bavaria and is much more right wing in its um, outlook on social rights, has lost its its predominance in Bavaria. And this is definitely a sign of, you know, the political system unraveling. They tried to stem the tide of the IFD by copying the, the IFD's uh, uh, extreme right rhetoric concerning refugees, but that didn't stop a lot of middle class Christian social voters from switching to, to the IFD on account of their anti-immigrant stance. So people just preferred the original than, than the copy. In other recent news, there was uh, a large demonstration in defense of, of migrants and against uh, xenophobia. Um, what happened? Uh, who, who, who was there? What, was, what were the messages? So there was a very large demonstration in Berlin last weekend, which, uh, according to uh, many sources, gathered more than 240,000 people. So who was behind it? It was basically the entirety of civil society. It was Muslim groups, Jewish groups, refugee solidarity groups. It was the Linke, uh, the Greens, parts of the SPD, and just ordinary people. It's very important to, to state here that the demonstration has been framed as being against racism. And of course it was against racism, but the central message was untaiba, which means undivided. The central message was that this is a demonstration in defense of social solidarity and social justice. So it wasn't just a, a liberal anti-racist message. It was also a sort of emergency cry for unity and social justice in the face of what seems to be an unstoppable right-wing onslaught. And it was a very important demonstration because it was one of the, the first instances in the last couple of years which showed that the IFD does not really represent the majority, that there is actually a social force which can break the neck of the fascists and, is, and, and can mobilize in defense of refugee rights, but also for social and economic rights as well. This um, anti-immigrant threat it has been a long-standing feature of German politics. It's not exactly new, but it's certainly achieving a salience in the last couple of years that it didn't uh, have before. Was it the influx of refugees that brought this to crisis proportions, or has it been growing otherwise? What's re- behind this, uh, this anti-immigrant, anti-migrant um, sentiment? To begin with, we should clarify what we mean by the refugee question. It's mostly a constructed idea there are no more refugees coming into Germany. The refugee influx, quote-unquote, was a pretty limited phenomenon temporarily. It was the summer three years ago, and it was an emergency situation. It wasn't that Merkel just invited people in. People were already making their way in through the Schengen area to Germany, and because Germany isn't a country like Poland or Hungary where the border guards can shoot refugees without any international repercussions or ugly memories from history. It was a contingency. But what Merkel has done ever since then, she started deporting people, the borders have been closed uh, thanks to the signing of this agreement with Turkey and the closure of the Balkan corridor. So I would say that it's difficult when you ask me what the reason is. I think it's difficult. I mean, there is definitely social polarization in Germany. And the fact that sort of the extreme center has been dabbling in Islamophobia for the past 15 years has definitely 
gave way to political forces on the right of established conservatism, which uh, are trying to give culturalized explanations to social problems, saying, for example, that there would be much more places uh, in school or, or kindergartens uh, if there weren't so many refugees. And but, but let's have a sense of proportion here. There was a Gallup uh, poll uh, before the Bavarian elections where voters were asked to identify which subjects were most important to them. And there were some uh, significant percentage of voters which said the migration question, but it ranked below questions such as education, social benefits, and the like. So it's not that you know people are voting solely with uh, the question in their minds if they're for or against immigration. There is an explanation, an economistic explanation, I guess you could say, uh, for uh, the xenophobia. All these years of neoliberalism, the Social Democrats uh, under Schroeder uh, created a whole new low-wage labor market, uh, bringing features, uh, American-style labor market features to a country that had not experienced them before, and that uh, the hostility towards um, immigrants or refugees is just a, a convenient outlet for these kinds of economic anxieties. Uh, how much truth is there to that kind of explanation? Yes and no. I think we should not be tempted into saying that because refugees have come in, the pressure has grown on the labor market, people are turning to the right. That's a very convenient um, sort of economistic explanation for the rise of xenophobia. Of course, more people coming in into the social welfare systems creates some pressure, but I think the subjective factor here is of central importance. And the fact that you know society has become much more individualized in the past 20 years, that um, the sense of community uh, has vanished and that people feel atomized and that they have to struggle uh, in their daily lives against each other for pieces of crumbs, of course, this contributes to this uh, framing of all the social problems sort of being caused by immigration. And, you know, and there is a sense of powerlessness vis-a-vis -vis the whole neoliberal consensus, which pushes some people to see the IFD as some kind of social alternative to you know, the, the ruling consensus. This kind of attitude towards foreigners has certainly a long history in Germany as well as elsewhere. But I recall uh, Helmut Schmidt saying, what, probably around 1980, that we Germans do not like the smell of garlic in our hallways. This um, hostile attitude towards uh, foreign workers in Germany has, has, has deep roots, right? Yeah, I guess you could say uh, like um, a, a historical explanation would be that you know, in in contrast to France or the UK, which were empires where uh, you know people from Jamaica or from India were considered subjects of the empire and sort of part of the of the realm, Germany did not have this similar experience. So, of course, there was a much higher degree of segregation of guest workers and um, than in the UK or France, for example, but. You know, on the other hand, you have to see that Germany is, is more or less a multicultural country. And this it has been for the past 40 years. And multiculturalism as a lived reality is not challenged in, you know, in the urban centers of Western Germany. You see, for example, the greatest uh, levels of xenophobia are mostly in areas which have few foreigners. There's definitely an east-west dimension to this uh, xenophobia. Uh, we see the IFD um, scoring very well in the eastern uh, German states, which uh, have been this permanent deindustrialized low-wage zone ever since reunification. 
And you could also say that there is a cultural factor that, you know, East Germany was also much more German in many senses. Uh, but I don't think it's reducible to that. I think there are, you know, two dynamics at play. There's definitely social degradation and there is definitely the subjective factor of, you know, constructing a, a national community processes that happen, I think, in every advanced capitalist society. It's not, not just Germany. I'm speaking with Leandros Fischer, an activist and scholar based in Hamburg. The left response to uh, these xenophobic tendencies has been somewhat uh, divided. We have people who want to just uh, attack the xenophobia head on. But then at the same time, you have uh, a new formation, Sarah Wagenknecht and uh, Oscar Lafontaine, um, who are saying that we have to engage with AFD's voters somehow and understand um, their their point of view. They're getting denounced for this as being uh, as conceding too much to the racists. Um, how do we sort all that out? It's definitely a very complicated discussion. First of all, I think that Die Linke, the main party of the left, has been more or less, with the exception of statements made by Sarah Wagenknecht and Oskar Lafontaine, has been more or less dedicated to welcoming refugees and also to try to to answer the many social issues arising from the from the movement of so many people in the sense that people who are already under pressure should not be forced to pay the cost of what this massive movement of people entails. But the problem is that Wagenknecht and Lafontaine have been denounced by the majority, I think, of the link uh, as pandering to, to xenophobia. Some have even gone as far as to say that they're racist or that they're national chauvinists or whatever. I don't believe this is the case. What Lafontaine and Wagenknecht are presenting is a very classical right-wing social democratic position. I'll just give you an example. Like Oscar Lafontaine did an intervention recently where he said that it was his role as a leader of the Social Democrats back then in 1991, where they agreed to curtail the once relatively generous asylum laws of the Federal Republic, he said that this was the way in which we rolled back the Republican Party, which was the main sort of extreme right party, which was gaining ground in the early 90s. Oscar Lafontaine has a very economistic explanation about racism. I interviewed him once for Jacobin and asked about what he thinks about Islamophobia and racism. His idea of it was that when people you know, are under pressure from the system, they tend to kick down on those weaker than them, which is partially true, but it's also an explanation which completely leaves out the subjective factor of racism as something which is inherent in a capitalist society out of structural reasons. Aufstein has more or less... Um, being thrown in into the political game as a formation which uh, claims to or aspires to unite disappointed, disillusioned social democrats or disillusioned greens. Most of like 90% of their positions are the positions of Die Linke. They have not as far, uh, yet as far um, distanced themselves completely from Die Linke. They are still members of Die Linke. Zaha Wagner still heads the caucus of Die Linke in the Bundestag. But if you look at it closely, the only difference you will find between Aufstein and Die Linke is migration. So they are basically saying that, you know, we should help people in need, but open borders is a neoliberal idea and people that uh, advocate open borders need to explain how they expect uh, a welfare state to function under such conditions. This is actually the, the root of the, of the controversy here. It's actually basically Wagenknecht and Lafontaine being classical social democrats. 
There's a passage in The Road to Serfdom where Hayek says that uh, socialism and social democracy really depend upon national borders. Uh, the nation is the planning space and open borders would really undermine that. Does he have a point? Is a welfare state or some kind of uh, socialist uh, structure compatible with open borders? We have to address that issue or is that uh, not true? The question is a bit misleading because the negative framing of open borders suggests that, you know, if there is an open border, people will leave their countries of origin and just flood the advanced capitalist economies. I think this is a very false proposition. Most of the people that are coming in are fleeing conflicts that are very real. And if given the option, they would not have made so many emotional sacrifices in leaving their homeland. This is um, a very you know, misleading way that the, de the debate is framed. I believe that the state, the national state, is relevant for left-wing politics nowadays. I don't agree with left Europeanism. I don't think that the end horizon of left-wing politics should be this abstract idea of reforming the supranational institutions of the European Union, which have time and time proven to be very unaccountable, anti-democratic, and actually inherently hostile to any idea of social redistribution. Actually, Lafontaine and Wagenknecht have a, a point there in criticizing the leadership of the Linke for clinging on to some illusions about reforming the EU. But this is not the end of the story because, of course, capital needs to exploit labor and, of course, they need to segregate the labor force uh, and, and, you know, have thousands and thousands of... Uh, of people who don't speak the language, are ready to work for lower wages. Uh, of course, they want that to, to accelerate the rate of profit. But the question here is, what does the left do about it? Does it call on the state to just close the border and just keep people out? Or does it actively try to organize these people coming in and make them aware of their rights and try to form a common front with them? Because this is not what capitalists want. Capitalists want migration as long as these people are worse off. So, of course, this might sound very difficult task and very utopian, but I think it's much more realistic than what Wagenist or Lafontaine are proposing, which is more or less a uh, return to this classical Keynesian social democracy with regulated borders and everything, which is it, it's, it's wishful thinking under the uh, present circumstances. And then finally, what about the, the political math of this? Are they correct that for the left to revive, uh, it needs to get back AFD voters? Are a lot of AFD voters and supporters people who were once social democrats or on the left and have moved right because uh, the SPD has disappointed them? Um, is, is there something to that point? To begin with, nobody in the link here or the left in general is saying that we shouldn't try to win over voters which might be tempted to see the the right-wing populists as this sort of social alternative. Nobody's saying that. The problem is that Wagenknecht um, has been saying that uh, AfD voters actually belong to the left, you know, from their socioeconomic position, and the left should try to win them over, and the fact that they vote for the AfD means that the left has failed. So let's split that proposition, because the AfD has been gaining votes from all political parties, and all of all the social classes. So, for example, you see in Bavaria and in southern Germany in general, you see middle-class conservative voters turning to the AfD. Uh, we have in eastern Germany uh, disillusioned uh, protest voters uh, 
who maybe used to vote for Die Linke, not because it was a left-wing party, but because it was also a party of East German regional interests, we see them switching uh, to the AfD. In the Ruhr Valley in Western Germany, which used to be a social democrat stronghold, we see there's also like a movement of voters to the AfD. But in many other parts of Germany, you see that it's um, sort of like the right-wing edge of the CDU, which is moving to the AfD, because they feel that, that the CDU under Merkel has, has moved too much to the left on social uh, issues. There are no easy recipes, and I think it's very uh, wrong to reduce uh, uh, voters of the AfD either into the category of disillusion, potentially left-wing voters, or all just, you know, petty bourgeois and, and bourgeois racists. The centrality in the fight against the AfD is basically attacking the tip of it, which is its racism. And you don't do that by accommodating to their narrative, which says that migration is per se a problem. It's a phenomenon which uh, you need to handle with it appropriately, depending on the certain context, whether regionally or temporarily or what have you not. Yeah, it does seem that uh, one of the ways that right wings of far-right parties uh, exerted influences by moving everyone in their direction, even if they themselves don't uh, become the governing power. You know, it's a chicken and egg uh, sort of situ situation because, uh, you know, the IFD would not have existed in its present form if it wasn't for 15 years of debates on integration and what it means to be German and if maybe we should ban headscarves in schools and, and all the rest. So in a way, it was the political center moving to the right in the past 20 years, which enabled the rise of the IFD. And now the IFD appears as a monster out of a bottle. And, you know, everybody's very shocked and doesn't know how to react to it. So the instinctive reaction is that, you know, people are sort of Deep down at heart, they are racist when confronted with social problems. So we should sort of try to accommodate to that. And this is what this is why you have this right wing shift in politics. But it's not based on any concrete facts. Or it's based on uh, very imminent uh, medialized images of the situation. I would say. That was Leandros Fischer, an activist and scholar based in Hamburg. He's written a couple of pieces for Jacobin. If you'd like more. I'm not persuaded by the left nationalist argument. Nationalism is by definition exclusionary, and political figures like Marina Le Pen and the leadership of AFD reflect its deep truth more than those who think they can put a progressive spin on it. It was Schroeder, not Brussels, who created the low-wage labor market in Germany. It was Thatcher who brought austerity to Britain, and Blair who confirmed the neoliberal orthodoxy. Workers of the world unite is preferable to the reassertion of borders. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Thank you. 
Hyacinth Silver Apples in the Moon by Morton Subutnik, a composition from 1967 that is one of the stars of mid-20th century electronic music. The rhythmic pulse was new in a genre that had previously featured beatless swooshes and beeps. It's often identified as one of the ancestors of electronic dance music. People actually danced at its premiere in New York in 1967. Next, the Supreme Court, which really needs no introduction. Here's Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. His book, Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, a critical look at the role of human rights discourse under neoliberalism, was published by Harvard University Press in April. I'm going to have him on again soon to talk about that. For now, here's Samuel Moyne in the Supreme Court. The recent Kavanaugh confirmation hearings uh, revealed uh, a character who is appalling in many, many ways, but also revealed an obsession that this country has with the Supreme Court, which has always troubled me. It seems like uh, you know, a deeply undemocratic body, and so much of our politics revolve around uh, it and uh, confirmation fights and all kinds of things like that. Uh, I was really happy to see your piece, because uh, the you don't find that very often in in our political discourse. What about the role of the Supreme Court in our politics? I mean, it seems like you just have an outsized role uh, if for, for so many people. Um, is there anything we can do about it? Well, it's, it's a great concern, and I think it will only continue to grow as we begin to see what Kavanaugh's, you know, vote will do uh, in these various areas of law. And I think it's true that his vote is, you know, much more conservative on many issues than that of his, you know, mentor, Justice Anthony Kennedy. And so it's likely that more and more people will begin to ask these sorts of questions. The power of the Supreme Court is deeply entrenched at this point, and and in part because of liberal connivance with that empowerment or even leadership in making it the extremely powerful institution it is. And we can certainly talk about how that happened. I think, though, that the left, you know, including, you know, more centrist liberals among them will will now begin to think seriously about different um, reform strategies. And, and you can imagine different ones that kind of start with the more minor and and then escalate into the more major. They include things like jurisdiction stripping statutes, which would try to tell the judiciary just not to take certain kinds of cases. Um, And they don't require any big changes in the law other than the statutes itself. There are some changes in customs like voting rules at the Supreme Court, which we could urge on on the court. And then there are like big changes that require the heavy weaponry of, of constitutional amendment, like to impose term limitations on judges. All right, let's get to that big stuff or the, the, the transformative stuff in a moment. But let's talk about how we got here. As you pointed out, there's been a longstanding liberal reverence to the Supreme Court, which you know, I can understand uh, based on the Warren period, which is what, maybe a couple of decades in the Supreme Court's long history. But for most of the Supreme Court's history, it's been a pretty reactionary institution that's defended the property uh, and uh, you know all the uh, the existing social hierarchies. The Warren Court was a period of exception. How did this perception of the Supreme Court as being somehow so central to progressive goals become entrenched, even though, you know, Earl Warren left the scene long ago. That's right. And and was a Republican. <laughs> right. Well, Eisenhower said his biggest damn fool mistake, right? Exactly. Yeah. So I, I think it, it is really kind of a liberal choice to engage in veneration of the Constitution in, in general, and the Supreme Court in particular, which which may have made sense, let's say, strategically at the time. 
but has just shown its its extreme limitations in the long run. So, I mean, if you go back, you, you know, many people are shocked to hear that the Supreme Court played little role in our history, in part because the federal government was so small and, until the later 19th century. There were, of course, terrible cases like Dred Scott and Plessy v. Ferguson, which definitely fit, you know, an argument about how toxic it was. But the truth is that the whole idea that the court would hold different statutes unconstitutional left and right only got going in the late 19th century when democratic majorities tried to use legislatures first in the states and then at the federal level to protect workers. And that was really the origin of our our constitutional culture today, that conservatives losing their power began to use the Supreme Court to entrench economic liberty against rising majorities. And then you get to the New Deal when, you know, enough of a majority and enough of a crisis situation pushed back hard and got the Supreme Court to relent. And what's shocking, I think, is that Franklin Roosevelt, instead of drawing on the attacks on the Constitution that had been pervasive in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, argued that liberals should embrace the Constitution And what that meant is that it left the power of the judiciary unchallenged or even strengthened it. That reverence to the Constitution, though, this document was devised by property owners, slave owners in particular, but property owners, you know, more generally, to put a limit on popular power and popular sovereignty. I mean, you read the Federalist Papers, they're very clear about what their ideas were. So how did liberals come to revere this? Were they on the side of the property or did they not understand all that? How did this happen? It must have been the case that FDR, when he decided to pack the courts, felt that he could put, after this one-time fix, could put some judges on the court who would would not make the mistakes of the prior elite judges who indeed had acted against the will of the majority. And probably he did so for, let's say, strategic reasons, that he he felt a, a more frontal challenge to the Constitution, as the left had been mounting for decades by that point, would just be unpopular. And fair enough that even his court packing plan was was terrifically unpopular, although it got the job done short term in shifting the doctrine of the court. The bigger error was made later when liberals lost faith in themselves to convince a majority of the country Um, to do things like desegregate the schools or emancipate women or protect gay rights. And they, they believed that it was not just a quicker fix, but more compatible with the kind of elite rule the founders talked about to rely on the Supreme Court's power. And now they're paying the price. Yeah, it strikes me that a lot of liberals today uh, and historically have distrusted popular power, think the the mob is kind of disreputable and prefer elite technocratic rule. And the Supreme Court is a prime example of that. Is that a fair characterization? I think it is. Uh, they, they're, they're people who, who were schooled in uh, what one, one thinker called the liberalism of fear. And they're much more concerned about, the, the, about liberal values than democratic ones. Now, in fairness, there were even justices on the Supreme Court who were liberal, like Felix Frankfurter, who really wanted to minimize the institution's role in American life. And it just was too tempting to use the heavy weaponry 
of elite rule in the form of Supreme Court doctrine to use some shortcuts. It's an elite, a version of elite rule that, as you say, in, in the era of the Warren Court, was seen as progressive. And so you could kind of have your elite rule and your progressive politics, your cake and eat it too. And yet the long-term results have been disastrous. We all cheer on Brown v. Board of Education as a you know, great milestone in, in progress. Was it a good thing in the long run? I think it's debatable. You know, it's, it's heretical to say so. A lot of people would still insist that had the had the court not acted to provide a kind of symbolic and and unanimous judgment around desegregation, the political branches like the Congress would never have passed the Civil Rights Act. Still, it it was symbolic. We still have de facto segregation of schools in so many cities, and so even this central iconic precedent that we would say is is the kind of the best piece of evidence for the role of a counter-majoritarian Supreme Court. It doesn't really give us much hope that judges can change the world for the better, even when they use their power for good causes. And then, of course, judges have used their power since for many malignant causes. Brown v. Board of Education was decided at a time when the United States was very concerned about its, its international reputation. We're in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, Africa was being decolonized, and we wanted to look like the good guys. So uh, there were substantial pressures to push us in the right direction. Take those away, and uh, what is the court going to do on its own? That's right. That's right. You know, we're not, we're, we're not in a superpower competition of the same kind, and, and arguably that's had a big effect. Even looking back, Brown v. Board you know, we'd have to ask counterfactually whether it would have been better, not just in the short run, but especially in the long run, if liberals and, and their progressive advocates had, had kind of shouldered the burden of convincing their fellow citizens to desegregate schools um, and achieve racial justice. The truth is that absent that kind of campaign, even equal protection of the laws becomes somewhat meaningless the data on the experience of African-American children in this country is really graphic evidence about the need ultimately uh, to abandon the court and, and shoulder this burden of, of convincing people, including in the South, that progressive values are the right ones. And then we have something similar with Roe v. Wade, of the, uh, the, that decision legalized abortion, but it was kind of a shortcut around uh, popular agitation. And now it just, you know, it seems like about the only thing that Democrats have left to campaign on is, you know, that Roe v. Wade hangs on a single vote or something like that. So, again, we, we did that, was that a, a mistake over the longer term to rely so much on, on judicial rulings and not on popular organization and agitation? Absolutely. And in fact, you know, there's much more of a, of, of a consensus that Roe v. Wade was a mistake than, Brown, than, you know, the still heretical notion that Brown was even... Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has worried publicly on many occasions about the huge costs that were paid by letting the court engage in a kind of quick fix when if movements had set out to kind of engage in the hard work of achieving a, a slower but much more popular legitimacy for abortion rights, they might have survived longer. So it looks like that opinion um, will either be overturned or whittled down. 
And so it's not as if prospectively we're, it's, it's a decision we can preserve anyway. Kavanaugh's vote is, is transformative on that topic. He's clearly someone who, unlike Justice Kennedy, who saved abortion rights, is going to whittle them down or even void them. And so in the end, we're back to the original problem, which is how do you bring this necessary freedom to those who already barely have it in some states where, you know, it's very hard to keep an abortion clinic open, even with Roe v. Wade not yet scuttled. And of course, you need the money, too. That's right. That's right. I'm speaking with Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. What is to be done, as, uh, as the man once asked? Roosevelt tried the court packing. That uh, stimulated most out, much outrage, but as you pointed out, it, it got the job done in the short term. We don't advocate that as a way to go about things now, especially since the court, if Trump would pack the court with even more horrors than, than we have now. But uh, how, over the longer term, can we do something uh, about this institution, which seems so deeply anti-democratic? I just mentioned, just before we turn to that, that like the bigger criticism of the court is is not like these debates about whether we could have gotten the same results in Brown and Roe some other way, but that in a way the price of those of the judicial power that that the Supreme Court holds is that it's it's really been an agent of neoliberal policy in the last thirty years. The what we call the Lochnerization of the First Amendment, and you know a return to thinking that the Constitution most protects private rights to economic freedom. And those are part of the mix. And it it really, I think, provide for progressives the main reason to be very skeptical of any attempt to, like, save the role of the Supreme Court in our national politics. So the, the big criticism of court packing is that it just adds friendly justices if Democrats can win the presidency and or Congress, but doesn't affect judicial power. And we've been we've been there, done that, if you like. FDR packed the court, and over a few decades, that led to some progressive inroads, but in the long run has been disastrous for the country in the form of this judicial advocacy of, of economic freedom. So I would say we need to think bigger and debate the kinds of strategies that would disempower the, the higher judiciary. And we can talk about you know, those in detail if you want, but they include jurisdiction stripping, term limitations. The biggie would be somehow changing the voting rules of the Supreme Court so that when the justices disagree, more democratic branches decide constitutional issues and or depriving the Supreme Court of the power of judicial review. Yeah, let's talk about some of those things that could be done by a better Congress, like, you know, uh, stripping uh, the power to make decisions in certain realms. Uh, how would that work? Actually, conservatives realized long ago that Article 3 of the Constitution, which sets up the judiciary, gives the Congress great power to decide the shape and nature of the judiciary and what, what kinds of cases it's allowed to hear. There's actually very little in the Constitution about how much the court in general and the judiciary has to be empowered to decide. And so in areas like immigration, the Congress has long since said that the court just can't speak to certain kinds of cases. And if we wanted to preserve abortion or affirmative action, which is the likeliest thing to fall in in a very short space of time, a Democratic Congress could just pass a law 
saying that the, the Supreme Court couldn't decide issues that cases that involve those. Could the Supreme Court say, no, you can't do that? Well, no. We So then we'd have a lot of cases about whether the Congress is empowered to pass those sorts of statutes, but it would change the subject. And it might be that the Supreme Court recognizes that the Congress has power to determine its own docket. I don't know what would happen, but it's it's like the sh- most short-term, easiest um, fix, because all it re- requires is a majority of both houses of Congress and presidential sign-off to pass those kinds of laws. This whole notion of judicial review, um, how'd that arise? It's not in the Constitution specifically, right? Not at all. And in fact, you know, the case that famously is taken to establish at Marbury v. Madison was really ignored for most of American history until these conservative elites in the late 19th century who invented constitutional law made it this canonical case that established the necessity of having a Supreme Court as an alternative to mob rule. The truth is the left in modern history outside the United States treated democratic rule, parliamentary supremacy as the main goal of the left, getting control of the legislature and treated the idea that counter-majoritarian judges should have much power as like this American idiosyncrasy. And rightly so. The trouble is that this American idiosyncrasy in the past 30 years of American hegemony has become much more popular around the world. I think America should now lead the way in giving up that idiosyncrasy. As you say, the Constitution makes no provision for judicial review, let alone judicial supremacy. And all the branches of government should get to interpret the Constitution as they see fit, especially since it's a very controversial what the Constitution means. And it seems like in the end, the majority should get to decide what it means. Well, yeah, the, the Second Amendment thing, you know, we, spe- we spent uh, generations now parsing the language of the Second Amendment. Um, shouldn't that really be a matter for the politics and not uh, uh, textual uh, analysis? I would say if someone has the peculiar view that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms, it would be sad if we had a system where five of nine justices who happen now to be very conservative could just institutionalize that view by fiat from above. We should force the NRA to buy enough legislatures at the very least to pass a law protecting that right. And that would leave it unentrenched. It would mean that if a Democratic majority that wanted to overturn the NRA's law could do so and not face a, a court that makes the right to bear arms something that the Constitution protects against majorities. Okay, and what else can we do? I mean, aside from uh, jurisdiction stripping, uh, other, other possibilities are reining this beast in? There's lots of discussion of having term limitations, which would indeed require a constitutional amendment, because the Constitution does say that justices serve indefinitely. And so that's a hard one, given the difficulty of amending the Constitution. I'm myself very partial to a change in custom, which wouldn't require a constitutional amendment, which would say if the justices disagree too much, they shouldn't be able to render a decision. That is just a matter of the Supreme Court's own understanding of its voting practices. So imagine if there's a split five to four or six to three. It's clear that the Constitution, whatever it means, is up for debate. 
And if that's the case, it seems very unclear why we should allow five of nine rather than a majority of the people to decide what they want it to mean. And so this technique of encouraging the justices to just not decide cases that are where they disagree too much, maybe the the remedy I think is most appealing in both the short and the long term. What's the constituency for this? It seems that liberals have not yet shaken their reverence to the Supreme Court despite all this. Uh, obviously, the conservatives don't want to do that. So is there a constituency for some kind of uh, agenda to reign in the Supreme Court? Increasingly, there is. I mean, it's not huge yet. But one of the most remarkable things for those of us who are progressives is, is how long it's taken um, liberals to give up their addiction to Supreme Court power, even though the counter-revolution has been ongoing for several decades at this point. It's true that during the era of the Warren Court, liberals were able to institutionalize their values through the Supreme Court, but that's so long ago. And at best, what they seem to have hoped in the recent decades is to hold the line by convincing Anthony Kennedy occasionally to join their side. And by the end, that was almost that almost never happened in cases like Trump v. Hawaii. Um, which approved the travel ban. So I think luckily that especially amongst the young and amongst liberals for whom the confirmation of Kavanaugh is the straw that broke the camel's back, I think there is a much bigger constituency for reform. You can see that by the massive coverage that schemes like court packing have gotten. And so I think it's up to those of us who have worried about the outsized power of the Supreme Court in American life for a long time to start getting the word out of different kinds of reforms and trying to convince more and more Democrats that they need to get behind them if the basic blockage of democracy that the Supreme Court is, is to be removed. I struck during the debate over the Kavanaugh confirmation, though, that uh, so much of it centered on his absolutely appalling uh, sexual assault behavior. But it seemed Democrats were really unwilling or unable to make a political argument against him. Exactly. But there's this ideology that the court is supposed to be above politics. It's just preposterous. So we really do need to address that that reluctance to politicize the Supreme Court, right? I agree totally. I mean, it's so explicitly politicized that the idea that judges aren't political is long since ridiculous. Um, And yet there are two big factors that have proved troublesome. One is that judges have just learned the drill over the years of saying that they just plan to be umpires above the fray, in Chief Justice Roberts's words that Kavanaugh repeated. But a, a bigger issue, I think, is that because of what liberals did to Robert Bork, the confirmation processes have now been purged of any actual content, even before justices get in trouble for their immoral mistakes, as happened to Clarence Thomas and later Brett Kavanaugh. So it's not like I'm someone who wants to fix the confirmation process because we've got much bigger fish to fry, shutting down the power that the Supreme Court wields. But it is very troubling from a democratic perspective that we have these confirmation events that have no actual discussion of what the judge's confirmation will mean for American politics, like on issues like abortion and affirmative action and and on down the list. And fixing that strikes me as actually much more difficult than getting the Supreme Court 
to play much less a role. If we could achieve any traction on that front, who is on the Supreme Court would be correspondingly much less important to begin with. And finally, uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation uh, drew a lot of attention to uh, the institution that uh, you're employed at, Yale. And uh, well, not half the Supreme Court now is a product of Yale, it seems. Four, four of nine. Yeah, four, four of nine, nine. yes. So how, how was this controversy received up in New Haven? A lot of themes intersected in the New Haven controversy. I think students legitimately felt that supporting an alumnus like Brett Kavanaugh this time was just very different for the institution than in the past because he's providing a fifth vote for a lot of noxious outcomes. And so they were rightly outraged that they felt that the institution was kind of worshiping its own power more than the the good of the country. The institution, because of the agitation around Kavanaugh, has begun thinking very seriously about its orientation to the judiciary in general and, and the Supreme Court in particular. If you're a Democrat, you believe that law students should train to work for the majority, not for some minority, whatever its power on the Supreme Court. A lot of folks at Yale Law School are more and more of the view that they need to orient away from their obsession with and admiration for the higher judiciary and think about what role an institution like Yale Law School or law schools in general can play in a, a coming majority politics, which will be much more democratic for all concerned. The, the Yale I remember, I went there as, a, I went to, as an undergraduate, uh, was not was not particularly concerned with the democratic values. But, you know. <laughs> it's not a place you'd look for democratic values anytime soon. But you know, it's all relative. Like the Supreme Court, I think Yale has to be toppled. You know, so uh, we'll wait around for that to happen. That was Samuel Moyne, a professor of law and history at Yale. His article, "Resisting the Juristocracy," is on the Boston Review website. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of John Kell's cover of All My Friends, originally by LCD Sound System. Till next week, bye.